Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 188. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, great show lined up today, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Film Talk with Dennis Lane. Then we have a little interview with Jason Sanford. Jason has a new book out, or his first collection, so a little interview with Jason. Then we have How to Run a Con by Michael Swanick. Next up, we have an interview with Jeffrey Ford, who is the author of the story, that's the main fiction, Creation by Jeffrey Ford. So that's something to look forward to as well. There you go. That is today's show. I do hope, yes, I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So we'll kick straight off with, honestly, one of my fantastic films I remember watching this film when I was honestly just a young lad and it stayed with me all this time Dennis Sir Film Talk A review from the Jacaranda City Last time I talked about a movie featuring the death of all humans after a nuclear holocaust This week I'm going to talk about a future where all wild plant life on earth has been made extinct I promise to look at something more upbeat next time The film that I'd like to talk about is 1972's Silent Running, which marked Douglas Trumbull's directorial debut after previously acting as Chief Special Effects Supervisor on 2001 A Space Odyssey, and which starred Bruce Dern. The screenplay is credited to Derek Washburn and Michael Cimino, who would later co-write The Deer Hunter, and Stephen Bochco who later produced Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law and NYPD Blue. So we definitely have three people here who know a lot about what makes a good story. The movie opens with a bucolic scene of flowers, running water, a snail, a turtle and a frog. Freeman Lowell skinny dips in a pool and then feeds a cute little bunny rabbit. All is right with the world. The camera pulls back and it becomes clear that we're not in the world, but in a dome of some sort. Into this idyllic scene speed three yahoos in buggies, laughing and joking, not caring that they're destroying the flowers tended by Lowell as they race each other. The fact that the three men are dressed in brightly coloured flight suits and Lowell is dressed like Jesus further emphasises the point that we have two very different worlds here. Later in the movie, we see that on Lowell's bedroom wall, there's a copy of the Outdoor Life Conservation Pledge, which goes back to Michigan of 1937. It states that, I give my pledge as an American to save and faithfully to defend from waste the natural resources of my country, its soil and minerals, its forests, waters and wildlife. This is an undertaking that Lowell takes very seriously. We learn early on that it was not some unspecified catastrophe that has required the Earth's forests to be relocated, but progress. At mealtime, Lowell rages that, on Earth, everything is the same. All the people are exactly the same. Now what kind of life is that? The well-rehearsed answer is that there is hardly any more disease, there's no more poverty, nobody's out of a job. It seems that no one but Lowell really cares about the forest anymore. 
This is soon confirmed when the order is given to jettison the various domes and nuke them. It is at this point that some unexplained questions raise their heads. Why did the forest have to be moved all the way out to Saturn? Why is each ship equipped with a number of nuclear bombs? And what was Trumbull thinking commissioning not one, but two Joan Baez songs? But if one can let those questions slide, we can move on. As the preparations go ahead for the destruction, Lowell gets into a fight with one crew member and kills him. He traps the other two of his colleagues in a dome and ejects them to their fiery fate. We're only one third of the way into the movie and three of the four human stars are dead and gone. Lowell pretends to the leader of the convoy that there is a technical problem and, reluctantly, they accept that they cannot save him, although they do vow to send a rescue party the long way round. The rest of the movie is taken up with Lowell's relationship with two droids, Huey and Dewey, Louie having been destroyed as the Valley Forge passed through Saturn's rings. Lowell reprograms the droids and they learn how to plant trees and play poker. The genius of Trumbull's directing is the way that the personalities of the droids are shown through a simple movement of an arm, a twist of the body, or a nudge when their master and friend enters the room. The final minutes of the film are taken up with Lowell's dilemma. The promised rescue ship is approaching and he has to decide how he can save the forests once more. I'll leave it to you to see what the solution to the problem was. It had been many years since I last saw this movie, and so I was pleasantly surprised when I rewatched it this evening. The special effects are pretty good, considering the budget, comprising of detailed models and front screen projection. The stars of the special effects, though, are the droids, who were operated by four actors, all double amputees, squeezed into the constricting shells. A bold and very effective approach. Bruce Dern's career has typically been one of playing unstable villains. Here, in his first starring role, he is definitely unstable. But he has such humanity that one can forgive him the murder of his crewmates for the larger cause. Given that his three co-stars are all dead by the 29th minute, Dern is alone on the screen for almost the whole of the movie. And he carries it with ease. So, in summary, the pluses are Bruce Dern's masterful performance and the droids. The minuses are a few holes in the plot and Joan Bias. Overall, I would definitely recommend that you give Silent Running a chance. It may well inspire you to go out and save a forest yourself. As for me, I can be thankful that it's just a few months now until spring comes round again in Pretoria, and I get to see hundreds of jacaranda trees in full bloom. There you go, honestly, fantastic. Dennis, thank you, honestly, you know, like stepping in when Rod, you know, couldn't really do it anymore too much in, in kind of life taking over, and Dennis stepped in and took over, and Dennis, again, thank you so much. What a great film. Next up is a little interview with Jason Sanford. So we have Jason Sanford on the line, and Jason has a new book out there. Well, now, Jason, I'm not too sure. Is this your first book, or is is this, you know, you've got oodles of books in your, in your back? No, this is one This is one of my first. Uh, this is uh, it's my first short, short story collection. Uh, it's called Never Never Stories, and it uh, collects uh, 14 of my stories from the last uh, about three years. So I'm going to say, Jason, tell us then about how do you go about, you know, a writer like yourself, you know, you've had some cracking stories, you've been ne- no- nominated for the Nebula Award as, as well. How do you go about getting your book collected? Have you done this yourself? Is this on your back you've done this yourself? Or have you went to a, like a proper agent and publisher? 
No, I, uh, this is an ebook I'm put out by myself. Uh, unfortunately, the publishing world is pretty down on uh, short story collections right now. So, you know, the best way to make a publisher or an agent or an editor scream is to go and say, hey, I have a short story collection for you to publish. Uh, they don't want them, you know, unless you're a really big name author. Um, and you've like delivered 20 novels, then they may, hey, you know, we'll also publish your collection. Uh, so this is one I've published myself. Um, it's on, but it's available on the Kindle, the Nook, and uh, also about uh, finishing up the work with uh, having it on the iBook store. That's what. I, that's an, that's another question. It seems you know nowadays we, we've got to do everything ourselves. Has has that been the case for you as well? Putting this together. Well, you know, I was I, I was very fortunate. Uh, there was a great artist over uh, in, in England, uh, Paul Drummond, who has done a lot of design work and art for Interzone and TTA Press, and uh, he designed the ebook uh, files for me. And the uh, artwork for the uh, cover for Never Never Stories was uh, by Julie Bean. Uh, and she uh, she designed uh, the art was originally for uh, published in Intergal- Intergalactic Medicine Show uh, for one of my stories, and then I asked her if I could also use it for the cover of the book. So, you know, it's not just me. I mean, basically, yes, the stories are all mine, but you know, I'm, I'm some great people helped me put this together. So now we just got it out there. Well, that's you know that's exactly like volume, you know, like Starship Sofa stories. You know, you, you, there's just so many little kind of intricates. If you're going to do it yourself, you know, you just need help so much. You know, like I say, I've got like D who's helps out there as well, and and Josh who helps the website because it's just it's all sorts. You know, yes, you get the book and you get it all done, but then again, like you say, you've got to put the thing on your website and publish it like that as well. So there's all sorts. You know, when you do take on this role of, of DIY, there's quite a bit into it. You know. Oh, exactly. It is. I mean, that's one reason I asked uh, Paul, to, he helped me with it, is I started doing it myself. And then I said, I realized pretty quickly, like, okay, this it takes a lot of effort <laughs> to turn out a really good looking ebook, you know, let alone a print book. But the more time I put into doing that, the less I was writing. So I was like, okay, I need to be focusing on writing my stories. So I, uh, Paul, he, he did, like I said, designed it, Julie did the cover and, you know, I, I couldn't have done it without him. So, you know, I'm really excited. Now, I am working on a novel, which will be, I'm going to land a good publisher for that one, um, traditional publisher. But for these short story collections, I'm like, you know, everybody kept saying, Jason, when are you going to have a collection out? I want to read your stories. You know, they they have trouble finding the stories or something. So, hey, this is for everyone who's been harassing me for the last year or two. Okay, it's out there now. Go get it. Well, it, honestly, Jason, you, you, in my eyes, you're one of the, kind of the most exciting writers I've come across, you know, in these latter years. You know, some of your stories are just captivating to be quite honest so well done for, for getting this out how how much how much is it come on the bottom line sir how much is it and uh it's a uh, the the book is uh it's in american dollars it's four dollars and 99 cents um uh, you know i don't know off the top of my head it is for sale in the kindle uk store uh the kindle uh german store and uh like i said we're getting it up on iBooks, so it'll be in uh france and australia and a number of other places um, and it's also available here in the United States on the uh, on the Barnes and Noble Nook, but uh, each each uh, each store has its own pricing, but it's all the equivalent of four dollars and ninety nine cents. Well, that honestly, Jason, for your work there, that that is well, as we call it in England, cheapest chips. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, was, you know, I was just trying. Basically, I'm just trying to recover my cost on uh, for the for the art and the design work and everything that Paul and Julie did. So, you know, I'm not trying to make a big profit on this, so I'm just trying to get it out there for people. And uh, you can also, I got links to all the uh, different editions around the world. You can go find it at, uh, on my website at jasonsanford.com. Well, I'll, I'll, see, I'll, put, I'll put a link on your website, Jason, and then if anybody wants it, they can, you know, pop over there and go from there. Tell us a bit then, Jason, about the stories that are in there. Because I, I noticed some of them that, you know, we've played a couple, I think, on Starship Sova. Is there any brand new stories there? Or are, are they all kind of, re- not rewrites, but, you know, all like being out before? Uh, the majority of them have been published before. I think about uh, half of the stories were originally published in Arizona. Uh, then there's uh, six of the other uh, seven are from different places like Intergalactic Medicine Show, Analog, and some uh, some of them are rather obscure, so I guarantee you people haven't read every one of these stories. But there's also one brand new story in there, uh, The Dragon of Tin Pan Alley, which is a fantasy set in uh, New York City. And the uh, Tin Pan Alley was uh, the, the heart of uh, the sheet music industry in the uh, late 1800s here in the United States. Um, and I also have some other new uh, content in there. I have a brand new essay on uh, 
talking about archaeology and fantasy. And actually, I think it's one of the best essays I've ever written. And it, it also, there's an introduction to the stories. Well, Jason, honestly, I'm going to go over there and treat myself to a fantastic book. Honestly, thank you for, like I say, for, thank you for writing and thank you for coming on this show. Do you know what I mean? Your stories just kind of make me happy, to be quite honest. So, listen, I'm chuffed to bits that you've got this out. And like I say, I've had the emails, you know, where can we get more of Jason's work? So, this is a great, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, no, thank you for having me on and, and for all the support uh, Starship Sofa has given my stories over the years. I, I It's amazing uh, the reaction I get every time you podcast one of my stories. People are like just emailing and Twittering. It's like they go crazy, so I appreciate it. Well, it's, you know, grand words there. Thank you very much, sir. Jason, look, look after yourself and we'll catch up soon. Uh, take care, take care. Yes. <laughs> They go, please support young writers. Honestly, like I say, talking to Jason there, one very exciting writer. Do you know what I mean? And we're talking a little bit off air as well about. It does not sound right, Ponzi. Talking off air. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> what do I sound like there? I sound like a right prat. <laughs> And he was on about his novel and that, you know, just how excited he is about this, getting this kind of sorted out as well. So, you know what I mean? He, one of my favourite writers, you know, the, can, the, the stuff Jason's putting out is just stunning. So do go over there. Like I say, cheap as chips, man. Come on. Get it on your Kindle. <laughs> Next up is How to Run a Con, Michael Swanick. Hello, this is Dagger. And I'm Surplus. And we're here to teach you How, how to, to Run, run a Con. con. Swindling is, like oil painting or making stained glass windows, or indeed the writing of fiction, one of the last bastions of hand craftsmanship in an increasingly mechanized world. But does that mean that modern technology has no place in our profession? Absolutely not. Confidence artists have always employed anticipatory technology, as witnessed that 19th century classic, The Romanian Box. A stack of banknote paper obtained by bleaching $1 bills is placed within a complicated box-shaped device with a genuine $1,000 bill on top. Chemicals are added, and then the box is placed in an oven at low heat overnight. In the morning, there's a fresh stack of G-notes, each indistinguishable from the original. Exactly how did the box work? Ah, uh, sir, I'm afraid that that is proprietary information. However, for $10,000, the box is yours. With it and $20 worth of chemicals, you can increase your wealth a thousandfold. It's an easy sale. Yes, and by the time the box is finished baking overnight, and a cursory examination of the device proves it to be well, less than promised, the con man is long gone. But the big money is, and always will be, in perpetual motion machines. Of course, the very idea of such a device violates the laws of physics. Indeed. However, overt perpetual motion machines, devices which generate more power than is put into them, were peddled in a simpler, more bucolic era when talk of the first and second laws of thermodynamics might as well have been rocket science. Uh, specialization, mind you, that did not yet exist. Nowadays, this problem is glossed over by avoiding the term entirely while retaining its wishful impossibility. The revolutionary new carburetor that will allow your car to run on water is a good example. Or any system that employs zero-point energy. Well, exactly what is zero-point energy? It's science! <laughs> but the best possible example of this principle is the Keeley Motor Company. Ah, uh, yes. John Worrell Keeley was a Philadelphian who, in 1872, announced that, inspired by the vibrations of a simple tuning fork, he had discovered the means of tapping into etheric energy. Einstein hadn't even been born yet, remember. At the time... Luminiferous ether was cutting-edge science, an undetectable something which was believed to permeate all of space and mediate all forms of energy. With the aid of complex diagrams which even today are impressively incomprehensible, Keeley raised $1 million in capital and proceeded to build his machine. It worked dazzlingly. Potential investors were given demonstrations in which Keeley's engine sent bullets flying through 12 inches of oak planking, snapped great iron chains, and ripped solid metal bars apart. The device supposedly drew its energy from, what else, water. Keeley confidently predicted that his discovery would make all other sources of power obsolete. 
A pint of H2O would be enough to send a train from Philadelphia to San Francisco or a steamship halfway across the Atlantic. A bucket of water, he thundered, has enough power to move the world out of its course. Tragically, though Scientific American and other reputable magazines regularly reported on the motor's imminent commercial appearance, Keeley's device was never quite ready to bring to market. As the years passed, his skeptics grew more and more vocal. On November 18, 1898, the great man died. Investigators found a compressed air system in the basement of his house with which Keeley had worked all of his impressive effects. Twenty-six years of dreams proved to be nothing but fraud and humbug. Yet for those twenty-six years, John Keeley had lived like a king. Proving that, while there may be no such thing as free energy, for an intelligent and disciplined conman, there always is, and always will be, a free lunch. This is Surplus. And I'm Dagger, teaching you how, how to, to run, run a con. This zero-point energy business sounds promising. Do you think we could do something with it? My dear sir, many of us believe it will be next year's cold fusion. Indeed. Well, then, I have an idea. I'm going to try and get Michael on week or so or two's times just Michael's got a new book out and this is all to do with why we're running these how to run a con and I'm sure it's due pretty soon so I'll try and grab a little interview with Michael as well Michael's one of the authors that is in Starships Over Stories Volume 3 as well and that's all you know coming together I'll try and get Dee on as well for a little interview with Dee just to see you know how we're doing it how things are going on his kind of side of things so we have an interview with Jeffrey Ford Jeffrey, very nice of you to come on board Starship Sofa. My pleasure, Tony. It's good to talk to you. Oh, that's lovely. Jeff, for everyone out there, just who is Jeffrey Ford? <laughs> who am I? Uh, I'm 55 years old. I live in South Jersey. I have two sons, a wife. Uh, we've been married for 32 years, and I teach at a community college that's about two hours north of here. I teach... Uh, you know, writing and lit and some other stuff. But uh, that's about it. <laughs> I've been writing for a, a, quite a long time, maybe, I don't know, a little over 10 years, um, and a number of books have come out. Um, the Shadow Year was the most recent one, and some collections of stories. The most recent collection was The Drowned Life. And I I, I write a lot of stories. I like to, uh, stories of my favorite form, really. And uh, I do a lot of those. They come out in anthologies that Ellen Datlow edits, and I have some coming out with um, Jeff Vandermeer and Ann Vandermeer and a couple of other places. Uh, Jonathan Strain's Eclipse. So I, you know, I write and go to work, and that's about it. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you. So, is is the writing side of life just a nice a nice little hobby for you, where you know the kind of your teachings, the income side for for you? Is it? Is that right? No, I mean, you know, I I make fairly, I, you know, there are years where I make uh, good money doing it, some years not, but uh, the writing is really the thing that I've most, you know, focused on in my life. I mean, the teaching job has been good because I get benefits and I had time off and, you know, hanging out with uh, young people mostly uh, for a few hours at each class and talking about the literature or something like that, that's a pleasurable pursuit. I mean, I've had a lot of jobs that were... <laughs> a lot crappier than that you know so uh the job is the job and i like it but uh the writing is really what i'm interested in uh you know i don't know if i would call it a hobby maybe a vocation you know what I mean? <laughs> so when did you discover then science fiction or fantasy you know when did you dis discover this kind of this fantastic genre well um mostly when I, it, there's, there was a little uh store downtown and they had um you know, magazine rack, and they had the spinning racks of books. And I saw, um, you know, some of the early magazines there were early for me, you know, like Fantasy and Science Fiction, and If was there. And the covers, you know, I really get into the covers, it blew me away. Uh, and then they had the ace doubles on the rack, the spinning rack, and they would, I would read a bunch of those. I can't even remember what they were about now. But also in our library, they had a whole section in the local library, a whole section of books, and they were they were wrapped in this plastic, and at the bottom there was a rocket ship on them to let you know that they were science fiction, you know, a little thing on the spine. 
And I remember going through that, uh, that two rows of books that they had in there. I guess I was about, I don't know, maybe 11, 10 or 11. But I liked it. I mean, it was cool. I, you know, uh, was it? From, did you want to write then from an early age? You know, kind of reading. Well, all this? I, the thing that got me interested in writing was um, my dad used to read to us at night. But he he didn't when we were kids, and he did. But he didn't read like kids' books. He read like these nineteenth-century novels. You know, like uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, Haggard, uh, Ryder Haggard. I remember listening to these books and and. Uh, the uh, the imagery was so uh, clear in my mind, like the pictures in my head from what he was reading, that I I I was I became fascinated with that. I w- always wanted to be able to try to do that. You know what I mean? Make that happen. Uh, but uh, yeah, I remember some of those scenes from those books still very vividly, uh, and that's what got me interested in writing. And then I had a lot of problems because I, you know, I had some uh, dyslexic problems in writing and stuff when I was younger. And uh, it was a struggle. <laughs> it was a, it was a struggle being able to just get it to where anybody could figure out what the hell I was talking about. You <laughs> well, know, <laughs> I was going to ask you that. How, did it did it take you a while to kind of to, to break into the market? Did that take a, a long time? Oh yeah, because I mean, I went to school up in Binghamton and I studied with John Gardner, which was great. And from that time, I mean, that was um, you know early eighties. And then, uh, you know, I published a, a novel with Space and Time in, like, 88. And then, nothing, you know, and, and stories in, like, you know, literary journals and, uh, you know, small press, science fiction, fantasy, horror magazines. And I was publishing these two different worlds, like, and then I figured, oh, what the hell, I'll put them together, you know, uh, kind of like uh, the SF side and the, and writing stuff for the literary magazines. You know, I'll put this stuff together and see how it comes out. And and what was funny about it was only the SF magazines were into it. Like, the literary magazines were like, forget it. It's got the taint of SF, you know, of speculation in it or whatever you want to call it. But the, but the SF magazines uh, were where I was able to start selling some of that stuff, you know. It's been, but and then in 97, I published The Physiognomy, and then... Uh, you know, from there, pretty steadily, I've been publishing since then. But it took a long time, man. I was a slow learner. <laughs> I was going to where then can we can we place Jeffrey Ford in? You know, we kind of place him in science fiction, fantasy. He's a mixture. Is that right? Well, you know, it's whatever it is that day when I'm writing. Uh, I I like the fantastic. I mean, that's something I'm really drawn to, and the possibilities of it, and. And, you know, and the and the degree of it in the story and so forth. So you know, I'd be in that that re- that range. But I like horror. I like science fiction. Science fiction, real science fiction, is really difficult to write because there has to be some kind of resonance between uh, the state of the character and the technology or scientific part of it. You know, there has to be some kind of metaphorical connection between them. And and to really do that good, I mean, I think that's difficult. But you know, fantasy, horror, whatever, dark fantasy, dark, yeah, dark fantasy, whatever. Now, this All is, of that sounds good. This <laughs> is a this is a popular question I sometimes ask. Does it get any easier? You know, when you you know you've been you've been in the business now, Jeff, a few years, shall we say? Does does the nah, write, does the writing get any easier? I don't know. I mean, there's things that are easier because you you know you uh, you see it go down, but it the actual I don't know. It doesn't get any easier to tell you the truth. Back in the when I was writing all those years and I wasn't publishing anything or you know any of that, I mean some of those times were the most fun I ever had writing. You know what I mean? Uh, it, and it's still fun and I still dig it. But the the uh, business part of it, which as you know what, for what it is, on top of it, uh, you know sometimes it gets a little tense. You know what I mean? Uh, that aspect of it. But it's cool. Uh, it, it doesn't get easier, but it's still fun. It gets more interesting in a way, because you see things that you didn't see before because you've been at this for so long, you know. Well, see, uh, I, I can't, to... I can't see them things because I never, never really dabbled in it. So. <laughs> I'm just making it up anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I think I, actually you answered this at the very beginning because I was going to. One of my questions I was going to ask you was: novels are short stories, and is it you know do you favour one or the other, or is it again? Is it just down to the day? 
Well, you know, I like this. I like the short stories a lot, but I, I but I've written a lot of them now, and I'm thinking about you know trying to uh, write more novels. Um, but I, you know, for a long time, I like the, there's something about a story. It's you can conceive of it and and, and uh, work on it, and um, you know, and do it, and then you can switch the style and do something in a, a completely different style or or a genre, you know, and do that then after it. I like that that aspect of it, but I like writing the novels too. I, I like the immersion in the novels. You really have to walk around with these things in your head for a long time, and that that's cool too. You know, I you know I like them both, but uh, but uh, stories are what I've really been most interested in up to this point. I mean, you're quite well known now for kind of short stories and for kind of novels. I'm, I'm guessing, but do you, your short stories are they now just written to order, or do you ever sit down and think, "I'm just going to write a story for me and you know see where it goes"? Well, you have both because you know sometimes people want a story to order, and sometimes people just want a story. You know, so uh, I don't. I haven't really had much opportunity. Uh, within the last, you know, couple of years to like just sit down and, and write, uh, you know, uh, whatever comes into my head, except that when people just ask me for a story, you know, just any kind of story, those are the opportunities then when I get to do that. I, I like the theme stuff, um, you know, I like the theme stuff because it takes me places I might not normally go. You know, maybe I just did a, a story for Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling's uh, young adult vampire anthology. And my thought about that initially was like, "What the hell, young adult vampire?" You know. <laughs> but then I was like, "Hey, well, that's kind of a challenge. Could you do something that would, uh, you know, that might uh, appeal to uh, people of that age uh, with a vampire thing, which is so flayed? You know what I mean?" Uh, you know, it's so beat, uh, it's so beat up over the years. It's been so used. But then you see a movie like uh, Let the Right One In, and it reconfigures the whole thing, and it shows you the possibilities of what could be, you know. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, trying to write something like that would be interesting to me. That, that, that That's a challenge, like, you know. So I don't know how, I don't know if I was successful, but it's a challenge at least. Tell us then, Jeff, what's happening now with your, you know, with your work? Are you, what you, I, I don't know, kind of what you're writing. You know, if you haven't finished, if you're one of them writers that doesn't like to talk about it. But what's what's well, going what on I'm in doing your now? World? What I'm, what I'm in the process of doing now is I, I have a, um, sold a book to uh, Harper Collins, a collection that's coming out next year, and I'm just finishing up the last story for that, like writing a new story for the collection. So I'm, I'm working on that now, and then, um, you know. I guess there's some other stuff coming up I gotta do. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so, we're, we're gonna play your story, Creation. Now, it was nominated for a Hugo Nebula Award. It came second in the Locust Pole Award. It won the World Fantasy Award. Can you tell when you're, you're writing a story that this one's a good one? This one is a cracker. Can you tell that? Or, or do they just all blend into one? No, you know, mostly not. I mean, you never know. Sometimes it amazes me the stories that people end up liking and the ones that they don't. <laughs> so it's, it's always a surprise, you know. But uh, that story, when I was writing it, I, it seemed like everything was falling into place with it, you know, when I wrote it. So it was a, it seemed to go well. I got a charge out of writing it. So I thought, it, I thought uh, people would like it, you know what I mean? Um, and I had been working on stories, trying to get the right tone and so forth, and um, it seemed to come together in that one. But uh, that's as much as I knew, you know. Well, honestly, Jeff, it's a it's a great story. Thank you for letting Starship Sofa play it. No, I appreciate it. It's always great to have a story on there. I like the I like the you know I like the renditions and uh, Rajan Khanna, who read this one, I think is great. He, he's terrific oh he certainly is yes well again Jeff honestly thank you so much for coming on board Starship Sofa Tony thanks it's been good talking to you I'm glad I got to talk to you well listen you keep writing sir and take good care of yourself okay you too hey good luck with the Hugo thank you very much yes thank you sir <laughs> Shall 
She'll jump straight into Jeffrey Ford's story. It is narrated by Raja Khanna. Raj has done a couple of narrations for Starship so far. Oh, this might be his second narration. He's also got stories at Good, which is Doors. And Rajan's first story, Flowing Shapes, is available online in the first issue of Basement Stories. You can find articles by Raj at Tor.com as well. He's also been narration. He's just done a narration for, I've seen there on his website for Podcastle. So do come over and check Raj's site. A great, Raj, great narration this. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Creation by Jeffrey Ford. I learned about creation from Mrs. Grimm in the basement of her house around the corner from ours. The room was dimly lit by a stained-glass lamp positioned above the pool table. There was also a bar in the corner, behind which hung an electric sign that read Rheingold and held a can that endlessly poured golden beer into a pilsner glass that never seemed to overflow. That brew was liquid light, bright bubbles never ceasing to rise. "'Who made you?' she would ask, consulting that little book with the pastel-colored descriptions of agony and hell and the angel-strewn clouds of heaven. She had the nose of a witch— one continuous eyebrow, the teacup shiny skin, even the wrinkles seemed capable of cracking. Her smile was merely the absence of a frown, but she made candy apples for us at Halloween and marshmallow bricks in the shape of wise men at Christmas. I often wondered how she had come to know so much about God and pictured saints with halos and cassocks playing pool and drinking beer in her basement at night. We kids would page through our own copies of the catechism book to find the appropriate response, Before anyone else could answer, Amy Lash would already be saying, God made me. Then Richard Antonelli would get up and jump around, making fart noises through his mouth, and Mrs. Grimm would shake her head and tell him God was watching. I never jumped around, never spoke out of turn, for two reasons. Neither of which has to do with God. One was what my father called his size ten, referring to his shoe. And the other was that I was too busy watching that sign over the bar, waiting to see the beer finally spill. The only time I was ever distracted from my vigilance was when she told us about the creation of Adam and Eve. After God had made the world, he made them too, because he had so much love and not enough places to put it. He made Adam out of clay and blew life into him, and once he came to life, God made him sleep and then stole a rib and made a woman. After the illustration of a naked couple consumed in flame, being bitten by black snakes and poked by the fork of a pink demon with horns and bat wings, The picture for the story of the creation of Adam was my favorite. A bearded god in flowing robes leaned over a clay man, breathing blue-gray life into him. That breath of life was like a great autumn wind blowing through my imagination, carrying with it all sorts of questions like pastel leaves that momentarily obscured my view of the beautiful flow of beer. Was dirt the first thing Adam tasted? Was God's beard brushing against his chin the first thing he felt? When he slept, did he dream of God stealing his rib, and did it crack when it came away from him? What did he make of Eve and the fact that she was the only woman for him to marry? Was he thankful it wasn't Amy Lash? Later on, I asked my father what he thought about the creation of Adam, and he gave me his usual response to any questions concerning religion. Look, he said, it's a nice story, but when you die, you're food for the worms. One time my mother made him take me to church when she was sick, and he sat in the front row, directly in front of the priest. While everyone else was genuflecting and standing and singing, He just sat there, staring, his arms folded and one leg crossed over the other. When they rang the little bell and everyone beat their chest, he laughed out loud. No matter what I'd learned in catechism about God and hell and the Ten Commandments, my father was hard to ignore. He worked two jobs, his muscles were huge, and once, when the neighbor's Doberman, big as a pony, went crazy and attacked a girl walking her poodle down our street, I saw him run outside with a baseball bat, grab the girl in one arm, and then beat the dog to death as it tried to go for his throat. Throughout all of this, he never lost the cigarette in the corner of his mouth and only put it out in order to hug the girl and quiet her crying. Food for the worms, I thought, and took that thought along with a brown paper bag of equipment through the hole in the chain-link fence into the woods that lay behind the schoolyard. Those woods were deep, and you could travel through them for miles and miles, never coming out from under the trees or seeing a backyard. Richard Antonelli hunted squirrels with a BB gun in them, and Bobby Lennon and his gang went there at night, lit a little fire, and drank beer. Once, while exploring, I discovered a rain-sogged playboy, once a dead fox. 
Kid said there was gold in the creek that wound among the trees, and that there was a far-flung acre that sank down into a deep valley where the deer went to die. For many years it was rumored that a monkey, escaped from a traveling carnival over in Brightwaters, lived in the treetops. It was midsummer, and the dragonflies buzzed. The squirrels leaped from branch to branch, frightened sparrows darted away. The sun beamed in through gaps in the green above, leaving, here and there, shifting puddles of light on the pine-needle floor. Within one of those patches of light, I practiced creation. There was no clay, so I used an old log for the body. The arms were long, five-fingered branches that I positioned jutting out from the torso. The legs were two large birch saplings with plenty of spring for running and jumping. These I laid angled to the base of the log. A large hunk of bark that had peeled off an oak was the head. On this I laid red mushroom eyes, curved barnacles of fungus for ears, a dried seed pod for a nose. The mouth was merely a hole I punched through the bark with my penknife. Before fixing the fern hair to the top of the head, I slid beneath the curve of the sheet of bark those things I thought might help to confer life. A dandelion gone to ghostly seed, a cardinal's wing feather, a see-through quartz pebble, a twenty-five-cent compass. The ferns made a striking hairdo, the weeds with their burr-like ends formed a venerable beard. I gave him a weapon to hunt with, a long pointed stick that was my exact height. When I was finished putting my man together, I stood and looked down upon him. He looked good. He looked ready to come to life. I went to the brown paper bag and took out my catechism book. Then, kneeling near his right ear, I whispered to him all of the questions Mrs. Grimm would ever ask. When I got to the one, what is hell? His left eye rolled off his face and I had to put it back. I followed up the last answer with a quick promise never to steal a rib. Putting the book back into the bag, I then retrieved a capped, cleaned-out baby food jar. It had once held vanilla pudding, my little sister's favorite, but now it was filled with breath. I had asked my father to blow into it. Without asking any questions, he never looked away from the racing form, but took a drag from his cigarette and blew a long, blue-gray stream of air into it. I capped it quickly and thanked him. Don't say I never gave you anything, he mumbled as I ran to my room to look at it beneath the bare light bulb. The spirit swirled within and then slowly became invisible. I held the jar down to the mouth of my man, and when I couldn't get it any closer, I unscrewed the lid and carefully poured out every atom of breath. There was nothing to see, so I held it there a long time and let him drink it in. As I pulled the jar away, I heard a breeze blowing through the leaves, felt it on the back of my neck. I stood up quickly and turned around with a keen sense that someone was watching me. I got scared. When the breeze came again, it chilled me, for wrapped in it was the quietest whisper ever. I dropped the jar and ran all the way home. That night, as I lay in bed, the lights out, my mother sitting next to me, stroking my crew cut and softly singing, until the real thing comes along. I remembered that I had left my catechism book in the brown bag next to the body of the man. I immediately made believe I was asleep so that my mother would leave. Had she stayed, she would have eventually felt my guilt through the top of my head. When the door was closed over, I began to toss and turn, thinking of my man lying out there in the dark woods by himself. I promised God that I would go out there in the morning, get my book, and take my creation apart. With the first bird song in the dark of the new day, I fell asleep and dreamed I was in Mrs. Grimm's basement with the saints, a beautiful woman saint with a big rose bush thorn sticking right into the middle of her forehead, told me, your man's name is Kavanaugh. Hey, that's the name of the guy who owns the deli in town, I told her. Great head cheese at that place, said a saint with a baby lamb under his arm. Another big bearded saint used the end of a pool cue to cock back his halo. He leaned over me and asked, Why did God make you? I reached for my book but realized I had left it in the woods. Come on, he said, that's one of the easiest ones. I looked away at the bar, stalling for time while I tried to remember the answer, and just then the glass on the sign overflowed and spilled onto the floor. The next day, my man Kavanaugh was gone. Not a scrap of him left behind, no sign of the red feather or the clear pebble. This wasn't a case of someone having come along and maliciously scattered him. I searched the entire area. It was a certainty that he had risen up, taken his spear and the brown paper bag containing my religious instruction book, and walked off into the heart of the woods. I searched the entire area. It was a certainty that he had risen up, taken his spear and the brown paper bag containing my religious instruction book, and walked off into the heart of the woods. 
Standing in the spot where I had given him life, my mind spiraled with visions of him loping along on his birch legs, branch fingers pushing aside sticker bushes and low-hanging leaves, his fur and hair slicked back by the wind. Through those red mushroom eyes, he was seeing his first day. I wondered if he was as frightened to be alive as I was to have made him, or had the breath of my father imbued him with a grim, food-for-the-worm's courage. Either way, there was no dismantling him now. Thou shalt not kill. I felt a grave responsibility and went in search of him. I followed the creek, thinking he would do the same and travel deeper and deeper into the woods. What was I going to say to him, I wondered, when I finally found him, and his simple hole of a mouth formed a question. It wasn't clear to me why I had made him, but it had something to do with my father's idea of death, a slow rotting underground, a cold, dreamless sleep longer than the universe. I passed the place where I had discovered the dead fox, and there picked up Kavanaugh's trail, holes poked in the damp ground by the stride of his birch legs. Stopping, I looked all around through the jumbled stickers and bushes, past the trees, and detected no movement but for a single leaf silently falling. I journeyed beyond the Antonelli brothers' lean-to temple where they hung their squirrel skins to dry and brewed sassafras tea. I even circled the pond, past the tree whose bark had been stripped in the spiral by lightning, and entered territory I'd never seen before. Kavanaugh seemed to stay always just ahead of me, out of sight. His snake-hole footprints, bent and broken branches, and that barely audible and constant whisper on the breeze that trailed in his wake drew me on into the late afternoon until the woods began to slowly fill with night. Then I had a thought of home, my mother cooking dinner and my sister playing on a blanket on the kitchen floor, the Victrola turning out the ink spots. I ran back along my path and somewhere in my flight I heard a loud cry, not bird, nor animal, nor human, but like a thick limb splintering free from an ancient oak. I ignored the woods as best I could for the rest of the summer. There was basketball and games of guns with all the children in the neighborhood ranging across everyone's backyard. Trips to the candy store for comic books. Late-night horror movies on chiller theater. I caught a demon jab of hell for having lost my religious instruction book, and all of my allowance for four weeks went toward another. Mrs. Grimm told me God knew I had lost it, and that I would be a few weeks before she could even get me a replacement. I imagined her addressing an envelope to heaven. In the meantime, I had to look on with Amy Lash. She'd lean close to me, pointing out every word that was read aloud, and when Mrs. Grimm asked me a question... Catching me concentrating on the infinite beer, Amy would whisper the answers without moving her lips and save me. Still, no matter what happened, I could not completely forget about Kavanaugh. I thought my feeling of responsibility would wither as the day swept by. Instead, it grew like a weed. On a hot afternoon at the end of July, I was sitting in my secret hideout, a bower formed by forsythia bushes in the corner of my backyard, reading the latest installment of Nick Fury. I only closed my eyes to rest them for a moment, but there was Kavanaugh's rough-barked face. Now that he was alive, leaves had sprouted all over his trunk and limbs. He wore a strand of wild blueberries around where his neck should have been, and his hair ferns had grown and deepened their shade of green. It wasn't just a daydream, I tell you. I knew that I was seeing him, what he was doing, where he was at that very minute. He held his spear as a walking stick, and it came to me then that he was, of course, a vegetarian. His long, thin legs bowed slightly, his log of a body shifted as he cocked back his curled wooden parchment of a head and stared with mushroom eyes into a beam of sunlight slipping through the branches above. Motes of pollen swirled in the light, chipmunks, squirrels, deer silently gathered, sparrows landed for a brief moment to nibble at his hair, and then were gone. All around him the woods looked on in awe as one of its own reckoned the beauty of the sun. What lungs, what vocal cords gave birth to it, I'm not sure, but he groaned. A sound I had witnessed one other time while watching my father asleep, wrapped in a nightmare. I visited that spot within the yellowed blossom forsythias once a day to check up on my man's progress. All that was necessary was that I sit quietly for a time until, in a state of near nap, and then close my eyes and fly my brain around the corner, past the school, over the treetops, then down to the cool green shadow of the woods. Many times I saw him just standing, as if stunned by life, and many times traipsing through some unknown quadrant of his Eden. With each viewing came a confused emotion of wonder and dread, like on the beautiful windy day at the beginning of August when I saw him sitting beside the pond, holding the catechism book upside down, a twig finger of one hand pointing to each word on the page, while the other hand covered all but one red eye of his face. I was there when he came across the blackened patch of earth and scattered beers from one of the Lennon gang's nights in the woods. 
He lifted a partially crushed can with backwash still sloshing in the bottom and drank it down. The bark around his usually indistinct hole of a mouth magically widened into a smile. It was when he uncovered a half-pack of camels and a book of matches that I realized he must have been spying on the revels of Lennon, Cho-Cho, Mike, Stone, and Jake Harwood from the safety of the night trees. He lit up and the smoke swirled out the back of his head. In a voice like the creaking of a rotted branch, he pronounced, Fuck. And most remarkable of all was the time he came to the edge of the woods in the hole in the chain-link fence. There, in the playground across the field, he saw Amy Lash gliding up and back on the swing, her red gingham dress billowing, her bright hair full of motion. He trembled as if planted in earthquake earth and squeaked the way the sparrows did. For a long time he crouched in that portal to the outside world and watched. Then, gathering his courage, he stepped onto the field. The instant he was out of the woods, Amy must have felt his presence, and she looked up and saw him approaching. She screamed, jumped off the swing, and ran out of the playground. Kavanaugh, frightened by her scream, retreated to the woods and did not stop running until he reached the trees struck by lightning. My religious instruction book finally arrived from above. Summer ended and school began, but still I went every day to my hideout and watched him for a little while as he fished gold coins from the creek or tracked from the ground something moving through the treetops. I knew it was close to Halloween because I sat in my hideout loosening my teeth on one of Mrs. Grimm's candy apples when I realized that my secret seeing place was no longer a secret. The Forsythias had long since dropped their flowers. As I sat there in the skeletal blind, I could feel the cold creeping into me. Winter is coming, I said in a puff of steam, and had one fleeting vision of Kavanaugh, his leaves gone flame red, his fern hair drooping brown, discovering the temple of dead squirrels. I saw him gently touch the fur of a stretched-out corpse hung on the wall. His birch legs bent to nearly breaking as he fell to his knees and let out a wail that drilled into me and lived there. It was late night a few weeks later, but that cry still echoed through me, and I could not sleep. I heard above the sound of that dreaming house my father coming in from his second job. I don't know what made me think I could tell him, but I had to tell someone. If I kept to myself what I had done any longer, I thought I would have to run away. Crawling out of bed, I crept down the darkened hallway past my sister's room and heard her breathing. I found my father sitting in the dining room, eating a cold dinner and reading the paper by only the light coming through from the kitchen. All he had to do was look up at me, and I started crying. Next thing I knew, he had his arm around me and I was enveloped in the familiar aroma of machine oil. I thought he might laugh, I thought he might yell, but I told him everything all at once. What he did was pull out the chair next to his. I sat down, drying my eyes. What can we do, he asked. I just need to tell him something, I said. Okay, he said. This Saturday we'll go to the woods and see if we can find him. Then he had me describe Kavanaugh, and when I was done he said, Sounds like a sturdy fellow. We moved into the living room and sat on the couch in the dark. He lit a cigarette and told me about the woods when he was a boy, how vast they were, how he trapped mink, saw eagles, how he and his brother lived for a week by their wits alone out in nature. I eventually dozed off and only half woke when he carried me to my bed. The week passed and I went to sleep Friday night, hoping he wouldn't forget his promise and go to the track instead. But the next morning he woke me early from a dream of Amy Lash by tapping my shoulder and saying, Move your laggardly ass. He made bacon and eggs, the only two things he knew how to make, and let me drink coffee. Then we put on our coats and were off. It was the second week in November, and the day was cold and overcast. Brisk, he said as we rounded the corner toward the school, and that was all he said until we were well in beneath the trees. I showed him around the woods like a tour guide, pointing out the creek, the spot where I had created my man, the Temple of Dead Squirrels. Interesting, he said to each of these, and once in a while mentioned the name of some bush or tree. Waves of leaves blew amidst the trunks in the cold wind, and with stronger gusts, showers of them fell around us. He could really walk, and we walked for what seemed ten miles out of the morning and into the afternoon, way past any place I had dreamed of going. We discovered a spot where an enormous tree had fallen, exposing the gnarled brainwork of its roots, and another two acres where there were no trees, but only smooth sand hills. All the time I was alert to even the slightest sound, a cracking twig, the caw of a crow, hoping I might hear the whisper. As it grew later, the sky darkened, and what was cold before became colder still. Listen, my father said, I have a feeling like the one when we used to track deer. He's nearby somewhere. We'll have to outsmart him.
I nodded. I'm going to stay here and wait, he said. You keep going along the path here for a while, but for Christ's sake, be quiet. Maybe if he sees you, he'll double back to get away, and I'll be here to catch him. I wasn't sure the plan made sense, but I knew we needed to do something. It was getting late. Be careful, I said. He's big and he has a stick. My father smiled. Don't worry, he said, and lifted his foot to indicate the size ten. This made me laugh, and I turned and started down the path, taking careful steps. Go on for about ten minutes or so and see if you see anything, he called to me before I rounded a bend. Once I was by myself, I wasn't so sure I wanted to find my man. Because of the overcast sky, the woods were dark and lonely. As I walked, I pictured my father and Kavanaugh wrestling each other and wondered who would win. When I had gone far enough to want to stop and run back, I forced myself around one more turn. Just this little more, I thought. He's probably already fallen apart anyway, dismantled by winter. But then I saw it up ahead, treetops at eye level, and I knew I had found the valley where the deer went to die. Cautiously, I inched up to the rim and peered down the steep dirt wall overgrown with roots and stickers into the trees and the shadowed undergrowth beneath them. The valley was a large hole as if a meteor had struck there long ago. I thought of the treasure trove of antlers and bones that lay hidden in the leaves at its base. Standing there, staring, I felt I almost understood the secret life and age of the woods. I had to show this to my father, but before I could move away, I saw something, heard something moving below. Squinting to see more clearly through the darkness down there, I could just about make out a shadowed figure standing, half hidden by the trunk of a tall pine. Kavanaugh, I called. Is that you? In the silence, I heard acorns dropping. Are you there? I asked. There was a reply, an eerie sound that was part voice, part wind. It was very quiet, but I distinctly heard it ask, Why? Are you okay? I asked. Why? came the same question. I didn't know why, and wished I had read him the book's answers instead of the questions the day of his birth. I stood for a long time and watched as snow began to fall around me. His question came again, weaker this time, and I was on the verge of tears, ashamed of what I had done. Suddenly I had a strange memory flash of the endless beer in Mrs. Grimm's basement. At least it was something. I leaned out over the edge and almost certain I was lying, yelled, I had too much love. Then, so I could barely make it out, I heard him whisper, Thank you. After that, there came from below the thud of branches hitting together, hitting the ground, and I knew he had come undone. When I squinted again, the figure was gone. I found my father sitting on a fallen tree trunk back along the trail, smoking a cigarette. Hey, he said when he saw me coming. Did you find anything? No, I said. Let's go home. He must have seen something in my eyes because he asked, Are you sure? I'm sure, I said. The snow fell during our journey home and seemed to continue following all winter long. Now, twenty-one years married with two crew-cut boys of my own, I went back to the old neighborhood last week. The woods and even the school have been obliterated, replaced by new developments with streets named for the things they banished. Crow Lane, Deer Street, Gold Creek Road. My father still lives in the same house by himself. My mother passed away some years back. My baby sister is married with two boys of her own and lives upstate. The old man has something growing on his kidney, and he has lost far too much weight. His once huge arms have shrunk to the width of branches. He sat at the kitchen table, the racing form in front of him. I tried to convince him to quit working, but he shook his head and said, Boring. How long do you think you can keep going to the shop, I asked him. How about until the last second, he said. How's the health, I asked. Soon I'll be food for the worms, he said, laughing. How do you really feel about that, I asked. He shrugged. All part of the game, he said. I thought when things got bad enough, I would build a coffin and sleep in it. That way, when I die, you can just nail the lid on and bury me in the backyard. Later, when we were watching the Giants on TV and I'd had a few beers, I asked him if he remembered that time in the woods. He closed his eyes and lit a cigarette as though it would help his memory. Oh, yeah, I think I remember that, he said. I'd never asked him before. Was that you down in those trees? He took a drag and slowly turned his head and stared hard, without a smile, directly into my eyes. I don't know what the hell you're talking about, he said, and exhaled a long, blue-gray stream of life. (laughs) 
There you go. That is show 188. Don't forget, copyright is Jeffrey Ford. Do pop over to Fantasy Magazine as well. We've been doing, running that little kind of conjunction where we've ran the same story as well. Some great John Joseph Adams, you know what I mean? Great guy there, putting out some great stuff. Deserves all his Hugo nominations as well, so do look out for that. So that is the show for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want, yes, you know what I mean, funds are getting a little bit low. Do support Starship Sova. Keep the old girl going high and flying high. We did, last week, we did the TV and Writers Workshop. And, you know, I'm a kind of, it's quite weird. Now, you know, I I dabbled in writing a a few years ago, probably about 10, 15 years ago. Just sort of a couple of stories, you know, nothing kind of to write home about. And then I just kind of fell out with it, do you know what I mean? And like I say, did other things, now do this, and never really considered writing again. And yet, and yet, that spark, that Kindle might have been ignited. We did the TV and Writers Workshop last week with Mark Zickery. And do you know what I mean? It's just like, ooh. And it's funny because I was telling Mark, you know, and hopefully, because... You know, get Mark as a mentor for us. That's that's the kind of big issue. Do you know what I mean? That'll be the, the 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 nice thing about it. But if I was to write anything like that, you know, like TV script, anything, anything now, and even probably stories, they would not contain anything of fantasy, science fiction, anything. It would be just normal life, which is actually quite bizarre. But I, you know, I just haven't got that feeling to write that kind of stuff. Even if it was like say film or TV. I'd, maybe the second or third, but you know, especially this idea that I've got kick, kicking around, which I've had kicking around since you know I was writing before, but and it was always never going to be a kind of like a fantasy thing. But anyways, we'll see how that goes. But yes, a little kin, you know, little sparky, little sparks have started again after that, you know, that workshop. So those are going to be online soon as well if you just want you know there is the narrator's one out there if you want to buy that the writer's workshop and then coming soon there will be this tv and film script workshop which was just fascinating honestly do you know what I mean just opening some, your eyes and opening doors to kind of you know how to do, how to get into this kind of, how to just get there how or get started anyways do you know it was fascinating so that's what's been happening but until next week i would just like to say good night from me survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A ventilation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Thank <laughs> you.